Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Virtually Speaking with Jay Ackroyd. On Thursday evenings, we discuss a broad range of subjects, mostly revolving around the current events and public policy. I am Jay Ackroyd. My guest tonight is Ian Welsh. Ian's been blogging since 2003, formerly the managing editor of Fire Dog Lake and The Agonist. Ian's work has appeared in the Huffington Post, The Alternate, Truthout, as well as now the now-defunct Blogging of the President News. In Canada, his work has appeared in Poco. .ca and Blogs Canada. I'm editor, writer, and social media consultant. Ian currently lives in Toronto, the home of Ron Ford. You can help, virtually speaking, folks, by checking out audible.com. You can get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at, at audibletrial.com slash virtually speaking, where you can find many of our guests' books. Hi, Ian. It's great to have you with us. It's nice to be here, Jay. We're going to follow up on a on a session we started about a month ago that we reran last week, folks, so you could be back on board. And what we're talking about is essentially the sustainability of what we might call the petroleum economy, or we might call the uh, the late stage sensorized agricultural economy, or something. I don't know what the right way to phrase it is. We could just call it the Anthropocene, of course. Is this a sustainable thing we're at? Well, of course it's not sustainable, but it can go on for quite some time. We've, we've been full in the petroleum economy since after World War II. We were partially in it around the 20s or so, but you don't have a full move over from the steam economy, especially in Britain, until after World War II. You just have a militarization, essentially, right? And some of the cities get some cars and so forth and so on, but most people don't drive. Petroleum isn't that important except for war making. I mean, it, it's really only been a big deal since World War II. Um, it's, it's not that we're running out of oil. We have more than enough oil or hydrocarbons in the world to cook ourselves, you know, 10 times over. It's just that we've run, over, we've run out of cheap oil and we've run out of oil that we and hydrocarbons in general that we can extract without doing immense um, environmental damage to ourselves. Well, like Bill McKibben's three numbers, when he talks about the fact that the proven reserves of the uh, energy companies um, has proven reserves, that is the thing in which, upon which their stock price is based, the thing upon which their expected earnings are based, a little more than two-thirds of that can't be released if we're to not go well over the the degree of I'm sorry. Do you want? Is there, are you, can you say that better? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, if if <laughs> we have plenty, of, there's plenty of oil in the ground, and if we release too much, we're going to cook ourselves. So we've we've got more than enough oil. What we don't have anymore is cheap oil, and and that's causing that's one of the main reasons why the economy sucks and has sucked since you know the 1970s. Right? The liberal era ends when liberal technocrats are unable to handle the supply shocks, right? You get stagflation, you have, you have Volcker crush uh, the economy into the ground to, to get rid of inflation, and what he's really worried about is ordinary people having wage increases because they, you know, they get a wage increase and they send it to oil, and then Greenspan uh, just keeps running that policy, right? I mean, all through, all through the 90s, they're always basically crushing wages. If you're old enough, you'll remember that time period, and you'll remember that results would come out showing a low unemployment rate, right? And the stock market would go down um, because they knew that if the, stock, if the unemployment rate was to drop, that Greenspan would raise interest rates in order to crush the economy. He didn't want ordinary people getting raises, right? That's what, non, <laughs> that's what Nehru, the non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment is about. And this is why unemployment now no longer measures 
how many people can't find a job who want one. What it measures is the number of people who are actively looking right at the moment. And what that measures and the reason it's set up like that is so that, peop- is so that central bankers and others know how much pressure there is on wages. Wages only increase when there's a tight labor market, basically, right? So what they didn't want is they didn't want the tight labor market because they didn't want any, any, any real increases in wages. And in fact, that's what you see. I mean, starting uh, somewhere in the 70s, wages are basically flat, right? And they're flat up until 2007. If you look at them from household point of view, they can look like they've gone up at various points, but that's mostly because women are going back into the workforce, right? And if, but basically, they don't rise, okay? You don't get any of the productivity increases, none of them. All well, of that, that, the productivity increases go entirely to the capital holders, not to the working. That's right. So, um, but that comes back to... The original that's, and, that's, and that's because, as you just said, the labor markets are slack. There's no the labor markets are slack, but the labor markets are slack deliberately. That's deliberate policy, and that has been deliberate policy for, oh, you know, more than 30 years at this point, going on 40. I mean, cer- certainly since 1970. Well, going on since 1979, basically, right? Since Volcker took over, the policy has been to crush labor so that there's no labor push, there's no wage push inflation, which means no raises. Okay. So and and that and that's a departure from the post-war era where uh, productivity gains were shared pretty much equally between well, workers. And, there's, uh, there's two different things. There's two different things going on, which is in the in the liberal era is a demand-driven era, and this is something that it's a demand era, right? So your idea is to spread the money around as much as possible. Everybody has money. Everybody spends money. You know, middle class and, and poor people are much better to give money to if you want demand for real goods and services because they spend it on that, right? I mean, if you don't have that much money, you don't spend a lot of it on securities. So, and this is something that, you know, liberals keep going on and on and on and on, but we haven't lived in that economy now for, you know, 35 years, right? The, they don't want wage increases and they don't want them because their diagnosis of the system, which is not incorrect, is that wage, is that is that the, you had a spiral in the 70s where you would get inflation driven by oil, right? And people would, would demand raises, right? And they got those raises. So you had this spiral of inflation, which, you know, I mean, I remember, I was always a kid at the time, but I remember chocolate bars going from 25 cents to a dollar in like two years, right? And, and shrinking. And shrinking on top of that. They don't want that to happen again. I mean, Every every set of policy, every set of politicians and, and, and people who run policy are formed by traumatic events, right? And they're not able, most of them are never able to change their mind, right? So if you come to age, if you're, you know, your most, your, if the impression that you get when you're young is, ooh, inflation, inflation, that's what you worry about from then on. So they crush wages to make sure that the spiral stops and also because they believe, quite accurately, that if people get money, they're going to spend it on things which will turn into oil, right? And that is, is the way they ran the economy up until the 2000s, at which point, because of the war spending and so forth and so on, they lost control of that. And also because of the housing bubble, people took the housing bubble money and they spent it on oil, and oil goes through the roof. Plus, of course, you know, a large, part, large chunk of Iraqi oil supply goes off the market since they screwed up the Iraq war. And they lose control of oil. It spikes to almost 150 bucks a barrel, and the economy goes under again, right? So, you know, so this is, this is what they're looking at, and this is what we're looking at, which is that if you want to go back to a demand-based economy, if you want to go back to an economy where you spread money around, you have to, be, you have to take the economy off of oil. In other words, when I give you a raise, when I give ordinary people a raise, it has to not show up as spending on oil. And there was an attempt in the 90s to do this by the Clintonians, okay? This is what they were hoping that, that the Internet would turn into, is a source of, of money, you know, of happiness, of, of whatever, you know. That well, of increased productivity that didn't require the expenditure of oil. Of, of oil, basically. But the problem is, is that you know, the Internet turned into eBay and, and Amazon, which is to say ways to ship things even more, you know, <laughs> uh, using even more oil, because, of course, it's so much you know, you know, delivered directly to your house, right, you know, in the most inefficient way possible, using a maximum amount of oil. So, you know, so that, that's what the Internet turned out to be, mostly, was, you know, was that and, you know, I guess, porn, essentially. And 
And so if you, want to, if you want prosperity again, you've got to get off of oil. But nobody ever makes any serious efforts to do so. And that, that's, so that's got to be one of the things that we've got to do. And we have to do it both because we, won't cook our, we don't want to cook ourselves and also because we want to have prosperity. And it it's also comes down to the third world or the developing world or whatever you want to call it, which is to say their per capita oil use is, is much less than ours. But if they want to live our lifestyle, we're going to kill ourselves, right? And yet at the same time, how unfair is it that we say, no, you know, we've used all the oil and now you can't do that, right? You can't, you can't live like this. Well, we use oil for domestic agricultural production, for instance. I mean, we use an immense amount of oil to produce a bushel of corn. Domestic, uh, domestic agriculture, we use it for plastic. I mean, why are we having plastic containers anyway, right? I mean, those have to go away. I mean, I know they're fantastically convenient, but they just have to go away because they're killing the ocean, among other things. But also, you, they use oil, right? This is just a stupid thing to use oil for, right? Um, especially frozen, frozen gasoline. Yeah, I mean, you know, frozen dinosaur bones. So is it sustainable? It's sustainable to the point where we cook ourselves, sure. Well, um, what do you mean when you say we cook ourselves? That's, that's, that's kind of flipping. You know, I got into a conversation on Twitter with somebody who... I was talking about the NSA, actually, and I'd said, you know, and the issue really that we're facing, the, the most important national security issue we're facing right now is climate change. And this person, you know, just said, what are you talking about? And, of course, Twitter doesn't really permit me the opportunity to respond to that question. But if you were to respond to that question, because I think it's true, it's something Marcy Wheeler once said um, on a post, and I think she's right. Um, what makes it the national security threat that's greater than I don't know. I can't think of anything that's particularly great, so I guess that's not... <laughs> well, the, the U.S. has no national security threats that are of any significance, uh, other than, you know, I suppose, global warming, which is still some ways out. Uh, you know, you have no enemies who could destroy, yourself, destroy you, so, okay, end of that. However, as we get more and more global warming, we have more and more extreme weather events, right? So... Places like New York are going to get hit more often. These freezing winters that we're having, it's, it's not just that things get warmer, it's that they get more extreme, right? They well, become, that's, that's exactly what was predicted by the climate scientists. Was that they well, were, they didn't predict it until fairly late, but Sterling predicted it back in the 90s. Um, it's, in any case, it's... it's it is now part of the standard models to agree that that's one of the things that's happening. It's also that as as we warm, what we're going to see is is that it has a very negative effect on some of the key agricultural reasons right now, regions right now. So we're going to have more and more problems producing enough food. Right now, we produce enough food to feed everybody and just don't care enough to do so. But that's not going to be true in the future. And and so once we start having extreme weather events hitting, we have not enough food. We have uh, about 50, 60 years out, we're going to start losing some of the low-laying cities, right? And suddenly you've got these huge population movements, right? We have massive amounts of people who live in areas that are going to be devastated. I mean, well, well, for instance, for instance, Florida. Well, all, yeah, Florida is going to go underwater. Most of Florida is going to be lost. I mean, Tampa's gone. If you want to see it, go see it now if you're young. It's, um, it, you're going to lose Florida, but I, I'm talking about other countries as well. I mean, these places are going to go underwater and or are going to become unable to... Well, to and, and to the point that they are going to international conferences and saying we need to get compensated for this now so we can start, start moving. I mean, there are Pacific Islands now you know, yeah. very specifically and very concretely about, uh, you know, the Philippine well, storm was not an isolated event. The Pacific Islands are already disappearing. Um, and if they're to survive, they need seawalls, which is going to be very expensive. The Philippines got hit by 200-mile-an-hour winds, which just shredded buildings. Um, you know, it was one of the most powerful hurricanes on record, and far more powerful than, than either Katrina or the one that hit New York. Um, but more to the point, far more powerful than we remembered having seen since we started paying attention to... Well, I think we've had a couple that big, but I don't think they've hit anybody. But, but you know, the, the point is we can expect more of that sort of thing. So you've got hunger, you've got population movement, you've got devastation. You have poor states, in effect. I, I, I want to stop and go off on a really weird tangent for just a second, because you're the only person I know who could talk about this, I think. What happens to General Rhee and the other reinsurers. I mean, they've been essentially 
insuring against black swan once in a hundred year events. Are they in a lot of trouble now? Uh, their losses will be nationalized just like everybody else's. So not really, no. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, they, they cannot afford... Well, it's getting to the point where if the government doesn't guarantee coastal properties, they can't be, they can't be insured anyway. Even places like General Reed will not insure them unless there's a government. So the government is subsidizing them. And, and this comes back to, to the larger point that Sterling and I have, have made repeatedly, which is you cannot... The way that we insist on living is not sustainable. We cannot be, you know, building on wetlands. We cannot be living right on the shore in places that are going to be swamped and so forth. I mean, it's just too expensive at the very least. And, and you know, at, at some point what happens is the government just can't afford to continue paying for this, which goes back to my poor state comment. The lower parts of Manhattan are never going to be fixed from, 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 the, thing, from, the, um, from the hurricane, as I understand. They, they're not being fixed now. The money will not be found for it because poor people don't get money from New York City uh, or from the state or from the government. Um, the same thing with New Jersey. That stuff has never been fixed. Large parts of Katrina have never been fixed. There is going to come a point where you just cannot continue to rebuild these buildings over and over and over again after they're destroyed, right? Um, so again, you've got population movement, which comes back to... So we've got hunger, we've got population movement, we've got people who have lost everything, right? We have a government that is not providing social services, that is pulling back from the social services. They're talking about cutting um, food stamps yet again. Um, so we have... We think of our states as being very rich because they spend so much money, but in fact, they're quite poor and they don't spend money on ordinary people, right? So, and they're, they're pulling back step by step. I mean, you see it happening in England, for example, where you know, people are frankly dying because of their policies. And the same thing's happening in the U.S. So, at that point, is, is, this, is this a national security threat? Oh, yeah. You have large migrant movements from, from, from other countries who are going to want to get into the places like the U.S., right? Again. So, you've got Fortress America with all the walls, and you've got the Coast Guard up around the thing trying to stop the boats and so forth and so on. But people will come anyway. I mean, we've seen that over and over again, right? I mean, if people are desperate, they'll get on their little rickety boats and they'll take their shot or they'll try and run across the border. Right now, we have a decrease in illegal immigration because the U.S. economy is so bad. But when it comes down to a course, if it's not a question of is the U.S. economy bad or good, it's, well, at least the U.S. You know, still has you know, a fair bit of food production, then people will start moving again, right? So it's and it's not just going to hit the U.S. It's going to hit all all sorts of countries. Any country that can still feed itself is going to have this huge refugee influx. So well, that's complicated by the fact that the um, cropping is, is monoculture is very fairly limited to collection of diversity in our in our in our agricultural production system. So if those get changed even fairly small ways, it may have interesting and difficult problems. By the way. We got a question from the audience. I'd like to know if you've read uh, David Kilcullen's book, uh, Out of the Mountains. I haven't read Kilcullen. Yeah, they're saying that uh, Ilse is saying that these are ideas that she's read in that book. He discusses the future of transliteral cities in the third world and how climate change affects them. Not a question, oh, transliteral. It's, it's, it sounds like something I should read, but I haven't read it. I mean, this is just anybody who thinks about it is going to come to basically the same conclusions would be what I would say, right? I mean, if you spend a lot of time thinking about it, it's just logical, right? I mean, you'll find the same sort of stuff in the Pentagon reports, probably. Well, that's so. one of the things that, that struck me when I was talking to this person about national security issues, is that it, the, the best explanation I can give for the... For, well, there are two explanations I give. The, the one that makes sense is is this. Uh, the, the, for the NSA's extreme interest in getting everything on everybody and being able to retrospectively surveil anybody, is there concern about domestic insurrection? Well, of course there is. They're, they're very paranoid about it. They know the rich and wealth, the rich do know how rich they are. They do know what they're doing to other people. I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, they're, they're sort of incompetent in some respects, and, and, but it's, it's still... The people who run America are still the last generation of competent people, okay? 
the people who run it in the next generation are going to be boobs. But but this this generation are are still the people who built it up from nothing. I mean, these are people like you know people like Murdoch and um, and Cheney and so forth. Say what you will about Cheney, Cheney is not incompetent, right? Um, you know, Murdoch is not incompetent, right? Um, what's his name? The guy uh, who built. Uh, the Great Investment Fund. I mean, these people are not Warren incompetent. Buffett, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. These people are not incompetent, right? But they're all old, right? I mean, these people are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, right? Well, that's and, the thing about Buffett is Buffett built it on, on on reinsurance. That's where he made his yeah. He made his he made his killing there, and and you know, and he he was he was one of those people who understood the spirit of the times, right? I mean, he knew that things were just going to get good, so if you just buy the stuff that that, will, that Americans are going to want to buy and so forth, then you're going to be fine, right? You know, pick up Coca-Cola when you have a chance. Uh, I, some some people are just made for, for their time, and, and Buffett was one of them. I mean, that, not, not to underestimate his genius, but, you know, genius is... <laughs> if you're the wrong type of genius and in, in right, right. in the wrong like, time, it doesn't do I mean, any good. My, my, favorite, my favorite example of that is Gates. Gates, born any other time, would not have been nearly as successful. Yeah, I mean, it, this is something that, um, oh, I forget his name, but it's been commented on before. I mean, if you were, the, the things that we reward now would not have been rewarded, say, five centuries ago, right? <laughs> you know, let alone ten centuries ago when you want to want to be, you know, a thick-headed thug who's very good at swinging a sword, right? Um and has, you know, ironclad resistance to dysentery. Um, <laughs> yes, that's been, that's it. Yeah, well, that, that was because they're living in close quarters, of course, as you were saying last time. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah. Um, so the point is, is that the other reason, of course, the NSA might be gathering all this stuff up is because they can, and they can't help it. Well, they can. I mean, I, I don't think... Look, okay, we've discussed the surveillance state before, but I think that what you need to understand is, is the end game on the surveillance state, which is to say that you've got the online stuff and you've got the offline stuff. You take pattern recognition software, which can recognize your gait, your face, your IR signature, which they can do through the buildings, right, and so forth and so on. So once you, once you type a person, you're able to recognize what they're doing. You'll be able to see where they're going at all times. You combine that with the online, with the online tracking and the phones, which we you know, conveniently carry for them, which are both bugs and tracking devices, and they know where you go all the time, who you talk to, who your friends are, what you spend money on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? If you do any, you add that to pattern recognition software, uh, and and it says okay well this person is doing something that he doesn't usually do or he's you know his friendship circle has changed and he's spending time with suspicious people and so forth and so on you then flag that person and you know the security state starts going hmm we should pay some attention to this person and that's the end state with for what they're doing and 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 of and so the so the formation of something like Occupy Wall Street would simply become impossible. Well, it's just not impossible, it, it, but it becomes much more difficult, and and they can shut it down much more quickly. I mean, it's already almost impossible to do this sort of organizing. If you keep track of what happens to people who try and organize any of these big protests, the cops almost always know about it ahead of time, and before the protest actually happens, they figure out where they're staying in the city, and they raid them before the before the actual protest. This is very common now, right? So you you know you have thought crime, you have pre crime. It's, it's we know you're gonna you're gonna protest, and protest is no longer legal in America, and uh, really you know for all intents and purposes, and we're just gonna shut you down preemptively. And even if it gets thrown out eventually, well whatever, you know we've still shut you down. We've still we've, we've still destroyed your laptop. We've still beat you up, you know, and humiliated your girlfriend or whatever. Um, and you know you you're going to think twice about doing this again. So, um, and, and of course, it prevents, I mean, the only way this really works is if numbers can continue to grow and if you stifle it early enough. And that is, you know, what happened with OWS in a lot of ways is that... It well, was, OWS had a whole pile of different issues, but yes, I mean, they shut it down. I mean, we, we now know that the fusion centers and so forth worked very closely with the police, with uh, police chiefs and mayors to shut it down. They used the same methods in every single place. Um, in many cases, they coordinated them on the same days. I mean, it was very clearly shut down from above uh, on orders, presumably. Well, you know, we have no evidence of it, but essentially I cannot imagine that Obama was not in the, uh, was, was, you know, was not 
at least uh, had it mentioned to him, right? <laughs> so it, he, didn't, he didn't have a didn't have approval or authority. He just happened. Well, he, he could have shut it down if he wanted to, but why would he want to? It was you know it was hurting his it was as OWS went on, it was hurting his poll figures. Okay, so it wasn't actually rebounding to his advantage. So why would he allow it to continue? Um, well, it also strikes his fundamental ideological commitment to the importance of elites running things. Well, he's an authoritarian, you know, and, and there's no question about that. So he's he's made that fairly clear. But I mean, everybody is now um, in power is an authoritarian. There's there's really nobody who isn't. So yeah, I mean, if you're going to take all the all the if you're going to if you're going to take the vast majority of the surplus from people, if you're going to take away their rights, which they have, uh, I mean, you basically don't have the right of assembly anymore, you don't have the right of association, you don't have the right of free speech, you don't have right of private, you know, you don't have your Fourth Amendment rights anymore, you don't have, the, have freedom from search and seizure. The same sort of things are happening in England, the same sort of things are happening in Spain, where you can now be fined $30,000 for saying something bad about a, uh, a minister, or six hundred thousand dollars if you interfere with an election, um, you know. What do you mean by interfere? Oh, uh, just if that's what it says, interfere, right? If you get in the way of people voting, or if you demonstrate near a nuclear plant. By the way, that that's a six hundred thousand uh, dollar fine. Um, these laws are sweeping across the world. They're sweeping across places that are supposedly democratic. You can't conceal your face in in a. Uh, in a demonstration, they have cameras everywhere, they have drones, they have satellites, they will know who you were. Once you're no longer in the crowd, they will come and find you if they, if they decide that you're important enough to bother with, and they will beat you up, okay? Um, or, you know, worse. Um, or they will throw you in jail or, or whatever. So, um, and it, the blanket surveillance states are always about the fact that everybody has done something, Right? We can always find something. Have you got some illegal music on your computer? Have you downloaded porn? If you haven't downloaded porn, since we have control over your computer, well, we can put some porn on your computer and it'll be child porn. You know, um, it's yeah, and that may sound paranoid, but it happens. It, so well, one of one of the so frequently now has it turned out that everybody who is against the government has a child porn habit. That one has become somewhat suspicious. The point in any case is whether you believe it or not, they do have the capability to do that. Well, in the space of just a year's time, we've learned about capabilities that even the more paranoid among us didn't think they were actually well, doing. most of it I believed in. They've, there's a couple more that I didn't expect. The intercepting of computers was... The, uh, no, the, physical, the physical installation of... Uh, yeah, is, is quite something. I mean, I ordered my computer. Who knows? Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm bugged. Um, it's... <laughs> you can't keep up, you know, the level of paranoia. You just can't keep up. So... Yeah, it used to be cynicism, cynicism but now it's paranoia. That well, it wasn't... It was, it was never cynicism. It was always realism. <laughs> and, and, well, no, because we were right. Those of us who were warning about this stuff were right. It wasn't paranoia. We were correct. And the people... And, and the, you know, the, the molly, everything's okay, and they wouldn't do that stuff. People were full of shit. Right? Well, but what's happened, so, though, is that the response is, well, okay, maybe they are doing it, but I don't have to worry. Oh, well, it's the old thing. I'm, I'm innocent. <laughs> I never do anything bad. Sure, I mean, if you want to be a cipher and never have a raise again, then I guess you don't need to worry about it. So, uh, but yes, these, these things are all, of, are all of a piece. I mean, they, they're oppressing people. Climate change is coming on. They're taking all of the wage increases and have for a long time. And now wages, you know, wages, wages, wealth, household wealth in the U.S., they were stagnant for a long time. They're actually decreasing at this point. You're seeing an actual decrease in the height of Americans, which is a proxy for health. You're seeing a decline in certain, certain subsets of the population's lifespan. I mean, people That's are, true, actually. People are hurting, okay? Now, the question is, when do they blow up? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, you know, so... But let, let's, let's move on from... from, from well, the, 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 the populace is armed, though. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it actually means more than, than, than liberals think and less than conservatives do. But it, let, let's move on from, from the surveillance state and let's talk a little bit about the economics. The, the economic... I, I don't have it available, but a little while back, I saw a chart of the Dow in real terms. We are nowhere close to the peak of the Dow in 1929. Okay, nowhere close. Um, 
we still have time to run. The issue, however, is, is that money creation in the world right now, as much as the Federal Reserve <laughs> has been uh, pumping out uh, money and printing money, is that the majority, you know, the largest, I won't say the majority, but, but the nation that is producing the most money in the world right now is China, by far. It's like 14 times as much as the U.S., right? So they have a massive shadow, shadow banking market. They're pumping out huge amounts of money. They have a housing bubble going, they're, and, and so forth and so on. Money from China is flooding into other countries. It's flooding into Australia. It's flooding even into New York. I mean, Chinese money is behind a lot of the, the purchases of New York real estate at this point. And this is with, with, with the Chinese government trying to stop money from getting out of the country, right? This is the money that is slopping over when people who will shoot you if they catch you you know, are trying to stop money from getting out of the country. So right now, the key economy in the world, and Soros has said something similar very recently, is China. They are where the growth is coming from, right? They're where the actual real growth in the world is happening, by and large. So they're the key economy, and when they go under, if they hit a bubble, if they hit a point where they cannot, where they crash out, the entire world goes. So if you're concerned about in the sort of short to medium run, what you're looking at is there. Right now, because they're not allowing any real wage increases in the developed world, and because the Federal Reserve and, and um, the Bank of Japan and so forth have proved that they can basically print as much money as they want as long as they only give it to rich people, then there's nothing to stop this current system from continuing, right? unless the one real economy in the world goes under, which is China. So that's where you need to be watching, right? You know, this can go on for a long, long, long time. But at some point it blows. And when it blows is when the real economy in China goes under. And that's going to be, you know, a combination of housing market, stock market bubble, shadow, the shadow banking thing going, right? And that's, that's where you're watching. And my guess is, is that we actually have some years to run. It always seems to take longer than, than you think. Now, I'm not very good at... It's usually fairly easy to tell what's going to happen, and it's usually very hard to tell when it's going to happen, so I don't know. But, but my best guess is we've probably got another six, seven, eight years. Um, this can go on for a lot longer than we thought. I mean, back in the 2000s, I thought we were going to crash out in 2005. Um, wrote a big article on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, don't you run the risk of just being um, cast as the Dennis and Danella Meadows of the of the 21st century? Well, it, it's it's yeah. I mean, I mean, because or, or Ehrlich, of course. I mean, Ehrlich's always driven me crazy because it doesn't matter. There's no evidence that will dissuade him, and he just says, "Well, just wait a little longer." And that's kind of the flip side of forecast. Often, as all, all forecasters are urged to do. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, as long as it happens basically in the way you said it did, then I'm, I'm less concerned about whether you get the exact timing right. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're brilliant if you can get the timing right, but timing is hard. I mean, <laughs> people, people, I mean, CIA analysts in the 50s predicted the way in which the Soviet Union would end and, and got it right. It just took, you know, another 30 years, right? Um, <laughs> so there's, it, it, these things just take time, and, and it, it's very hard to determine how long they will take. But China is, is the key place to watch. Watch for for them for the for the housing market going offline. Watch for them losing control of inflation completely. In the rest of the world, um, if they lose control of oil prices, then you've got a problem. We could see severe weather shocks or other events which cause problems that they cannot control. Right. So if if a shock happens that they cannot manage, and they're pretty incompetent. Then, then things can go off the rails. But if, they, if no exogenous shock happens, then the endogenous place to watch, in my opinion, is China. Now, just for instance, um, you know, Juan Cole reported that the reason, the real reason that there were, you know, revolutionary movements in Egypt had to do with food shortages. That there had been a mad, there had been a huge, huge drought over the past three, three years, and people literally were starving, and that's what was behind the. Uh, Behind those behind those protests, um, 
And Ilse's saying that, you know, she's also thinks that the third world is what's going to drive this because, as you were saying, people are just going to go to where there's resources. I mean, if they can't live where they are, they're going to go somewhere. And if that means a boat to the U.S., it means a boat to the U.S. Um, does this, but these people can't pose any legitimate threat other than the threat of sheer numbers, right? Hmm. Sorry, I was, I was reading. Who's sorry? I, I apologize, please. You were, you were reading comments? Yeah. Then, re- then respond to them. Oh, I just, I, I'm just amused by somebody saying oil doesn't matter, but I'm, there are certain comments I can't be bothered to respond to. What, um, what were you saying? Well, I was saying that, that what you're saying is the first, the first wave of problems is going to come from the people who are most at the margins. That is in the third world where, you know, they don't have any room for error. I mean, the United States, if there's a dust bowl in the Midwest, there's some alternatives. But when the aquifer dries up, I don't I, – I see, I don't see it that way. I see that the issues are just as great in the first world as in the third world that the United States has resources it's, to prevent. It's, it is the people who are at the margins that are going to cause the problem, and there are plenty of people at the margins in the U.S. So the thing is is that Americans are pretty cowed. Now, last so. time you were here, you talked about how the troublemakers had been locked up. I mean, that one of the things that the, quote, war on drugs is doing is effectively keeping the people who are willing to flout the law um, or, or giving – actually, I should say giving a mechanism for arresting people who are in the part of the economy and of the right age who might do something about things. Is that what you meant when you said we've locked up that, – that the drug war has been used to lock up people who are – Yeah, I mean if, – if, if you look at the people who are locked up in the drug war, what they are essentially is nonviolent – uh, users of, of of cannabis. <laughs> okay, I mean that that's the largest chunk. Um, so basically, it's a way of criminalizing people who won't obey rules that don't make sense. Right, but it's also subpopulation. It's, they're also arresting people in the bottom quintile who are doing this, not in the top quintile. Well, of course, of course. So basically, troublemakers, right? Anybody who would be willing to is, is willing to tell the government to go bugger off gets gets arrested, right? So I mean, this is this is a good proxy for for people who are a problem, right? I mean, what you what you see again is with the Reagan Revolution, exactly in 1980, the the chart of of the incarceration rate just takes off, right? It's stable all of American history, right? It's increasing at about the same rate as the um, as the population, and suddenly in 1980, you start locking up a pile more people, right? 38 at this point, I believe. Almost 50% of, of blacks have been arrested at least once by the time they're 28 black or so. Males. Black, males. black males, right? Uh, white males, I believe, is now up to 38%, believe it or not. I mean, it, it's quite high. And, and so the other thing is, is that you, you, in a lot of states, this means disenfranchising somebody. Once you're a felon, you don't get to vote anymore, right? So you're also economically crippled for the rest of your life, right? So anybody who's willing to be a troublemaker has been taken. They're no longer an economic threat because they can never have a good job again. They can't vote. They can't run for office. I mean, they're basically done for life, right? They've been, they've been taken out, right? Right. So, um, and, and, then, and they've spent time in the situation where they know, where they've learned for certain that there are no rules. See, because a lot of what we get, what, a lot of what drives, in my opinion, societies working at all is that people agree to pretend that there are rules about behavior that they have to adhere to, and those rules go away in prison. Well, in, in prison brutalizes people, and and you, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, is that you know that you've, if you have been arrested for a drug offense and you weren't a big dealer, or you didn't commit violence, then what you have been taught, because you know that, you know, that your betters are snorting coke up their nose every, every single morning and getting away with it, what you have been taught is that the, is that the law does not matter, that the law is bullshit, right? That, that the law only applies to people like you, and that it will be used at the discretion of a prosecutor or anybody else who's more powerful than you to crush you any time they feel like. And most people are broken by that experience, right? 
So most people, you know, they don't they don't get out there and say, oh, I'm going to fix the system, right? They, they're just destroyed by the system. They go to jail, they get brutalized. They can never be economically productive again, right? They can never, you know, they can never vote again, right? And, uh, you know, after they've been raped... Uh, unless, unless, they're Chuck they've Cole, been, unless they're Chuck Colson or Elliot Abrams. Yeah, there are, there are occasional exceptions, but... You know, basically, they, they, their lives have been destroyed. Their ability to be productive has been destroyed. And anything they do for the rest of their lives, of course, everybody will be able to say, well, you're an ex-felon, right? So it's all done. Um, even, so, if the felony is, even if the felony is possession. Yeah. I, I think that, that, that we've gone over that quite a bit in the past. I think that, that what we need to talk about is, is more a question of how do we get to a position where people organize. And the, the, the things that we have been talking about, the surveillance state, the police state, we didn't talk about it today, but the crushing of unions that, that occurred also under Reagan, um, are all designed to make it very hard for people to organize in any, any way. Individual people have essentially no power, okay? Uh, I know that that runs against the ideology of our current time, but it's true. It's if you want to do the Gandhi thing, you need what Gandhi had, which is to say, you know, a couple of million people are willing to come out when you call, right? And it's what they're what they're trying to do is make sure that the ties that make that possible do not exist, and that if you try and organize those ties, you get taken out, right? And that the people who would be the followers or the leaders, you know, are, are not available, right? I mean, you can't build a movement with 2,000 X, with 2 million X felons, right, as, as the core of your, of your movement. Those people have been destroyed. But those are probably, those are the people who wouldn't have been locked up in the old regime and who would have been willing to go out on the streets, right? So, because those are the troublemakers. So, until, and, and the other thing that, that we need to understand is, is that the old ideologies have been destroyed. When you look at you look at unionism, um, which was very powerful in the U.S. at one time. Well, also, but it also depended on force. Uh, you know, there were pitched battles in, around there, the turn of the century. There were pitched battles. Um, <sighs> violence has been demonized. What, one of, I, I've mentioned this before, but um, Clarence Darrow, before he became famous for the Scopes Monkey Trial, was a union lawyer. And one of his most famous cases was some guys from the printer's union who blew up a newspaper office and killed people doing that with, you know, explosives. In other words, terrorists. Now, you know, that's what we would call them, right? And now, did the unions abandon those people? No. They paid for one of the best lawyers in the entire country to defend them. Think about that for a little bit. It's inconceivable that any union today would do that or anybody else would do that, right? They're not willing to acknowledge these people as their people, right? And so what you have right now is, is, is a hunting license situation, okay? Because there are, is essentially no class of people on the left who are willing to commit violence, and there are plenty of people who are willing to commit violence for the state and who are willing to lock you. I mean, you know, this is what, this is what it is. Who are willing to, you know, to, to knock down your door, SWAT team, you beat, beat you up, you know, like what happened to the OWS people and so forth and so on, who are willing to tase you, you know, and so forth and so on. There are no consequences for those who beat up left-wing people who are trying to organize, essentially, right? Who throw them in jail, who destroy their lives, and so forth and so on. There is no possibility that some left-winger is going to go out there and blow them up right? And beat them up. That stuff has gone away. There's nobody who does that anymore. So they have a hunting license and the left wing knows that all they're allowed to do is take it. And what's more is, is the left wing has internalized it. All of our training, you know, about demonstration and so forth is you go there and you let them beat you up, right? That's what it's all about. And that really is, that's very, I'm not exaggerating at all. That is exactly how you are trained when you are given demonstration training, right? Everybody is very concerned about public opinion, as if, as if what the public thinks matters. The public, what the public thinks does not matter, okay? So, so you have this, this huge power dichotomy which has occurred. 
If you want to go with nonviolence, then you must have the majority of the population, or at least 20 to 30 percent of the population, on your side in an active fashion. Again, if you call, you need to be able to get a million people to come out, or at least a couple hundred thousand, right? You need to be able to shut things down. You need to be able to say, you can't lock us all up and you can't kill us all, right? When you've got an OWS movement with a thousand people, the cops just say, fine, we'll just beat you all up. Right. Well, I mean, what's two, that, what's, there'll be a two thousand cops escorting everywhere you go. Yeah, it's there's there's no big deal. So, so, an ideology. We have no. The left has has no ideology of of that, that allows for large collective action anymore. Right. The unions have been broken. Right. We're unable to... Well, not just... Let's just go back to you, Daryl, example, for a second. Not only have the unions been broken, but the whole idea of a respectable person representing labor in the kind of way that Darrow did. And Darrow was a well-respected, you know, he was considered to be, you know, a fairly uh, left-wing guy, but he was, he was a real person. He wasn't someone who's in the public defender's office you never have heard of before. Yeah, I don't know. He was one of the greatest, one of the greatest lawyers in the country. It's, he was a celebrity, you know, he was a celebrity lawyer at the time, right? So, right. And he took, on, he took on clients who we would call terrorists, right? So, well, yes, who, who would be called terrorists by people now, yes. Yeah, I mean, well, they were, they were called anarchists at the time, right? They were throwing yes. bombs. So it's, but anyway, I've, I've lost track. The, 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 point, the point is, is that if you can't, you have your, and if you're going to do collective action, the end, of collect, the end of large mobilization basically occurred around the Iraq war. You have these huge, huge demonstrations, and what you realize is that Bush doesn't care. Have your you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people out, it doesn't matter. What, so the, the next, and, and that is the sort of movement that in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 70s, used to work, right? Because the people who were in charge then cared. Frankly, they were a different type of people. When they saw that many people get out, having grown up in the 20s and 30s or being, being adults in the 20s or 30s, being familiar with real union violence, with large Occupy movements, you know, with riots and so forth, they said, well, <laughs> we knew we should listen if there's that many millions of people out because maybe the next thing they're going to do is something we really don't want them to do, right? This is a warning sign. Plus, you know, they also believed, as far as I can tell, that, you know, they should war on poverty and so forth, that, you know, they were representing the people and that they should listen to the people, right? They well, well to- keep in mind, too, that there were pitch battles going on then, too. I mean, Newark was occupied for 18 months. Right. So you, you have, have guard people with tanks. I mean, it wasn't that there was no, this wasn't flower children we're talking about. Right. So again, I'm going to stop for a second Ian, to get a correction on the record. Randolph did a little bit of Googling and found that 38 out of 50 states permit felons to vote, sometimes after a period of time after they're released. But it's not, it's not by any means universal that felons are denied to vote. Of course not. On the other hand, you can't vote in Florida. And what state is a swing state? What, 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 what states are swing states that have... Go down, go down that list and find out which swing states. What state was most important in 2000? Florida. What did they do? They purged the roles of people who, they, who might be felons, who might be black, etc. And that's why Bush won. That's why you got the Iraq War. So if those felons had been able to vote, Bush would not have gotten in charge. Even you know, even with the purging, if, if Helens had been able to vote, you would not be in charge. Now, Ilsa's asked this question once already, so I'll ask it again. Um, when when do you get to the point? What's the how long is it going to take for people to realize that their only alternative is to adopt a more aggressive ideological point of uh, attempt on this? Well, it's not going to happen at the very least until the millennials take power. Um, There's no way that boomers are going to do this. And and as long as boomers are leading left-wing organizations, they will not allow it to occur. I know that many people are boomers and will hate me for saying this, but the boomers have a long record. It's not going to happen. This sort of stuff only happens in a young society. You need to have a bulge, demographic bulge of young men. Okay. Again, you may not like that, but that's the fact, right? Young men are the people who do that. Um, and the other problem that we have is that we have no ideology of resistance, right? So we have no set of beliefs. We have no solidarity mechanisms. How are, how are people going to organize? They can't organize online. The NSA knows everything you do, right? So how do you get yourselves together? So it has to become almost a spontaneous thing, right? Yeah, no, no, that's really what has to happen. There has to be some, I mean, because in the, the, the revolutions they were talking about in the Middle East, they were saying they're coordinating it by Twitter, but <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if, again, what you, if you, 
I, I want to come back to the to the role of ideology here, which is to say that right now people don't really know what they want. Okay. Well, they don't realize how fucked they are. Well, they also don't really know what they want. I mean, if, if, if everybody's not on the same page, the problem right now is that you can always split people off. We have all of these small little microgroups who this person wants something, this person wants something, this person wants something, this person wants something. You know, the, the, the Latinos want immigration reform, right? Um, you know, women want, you know, something. Gays want something. Union workers want something. Teachers want something. And so you split each of these groups off, right? Until there is an overwhelming demand that at least a large minority, by which I mean about 20 to 30% of the population, can get behind, is simple enough to understand, and which they will refuse to, to stand down until they, they achieve it, that's the takeoff point. That's what you're looking for is, is, that, is that moment, right? So everything that we do which divides ourselves against ourselves, and I'm not going to point fingers to particular things, but everything we do that divides ourselves against ourselves makes that point push out longer. If you have a micro-concern, no matter how important that micro-concern is, if you have a concern, unless... So you, you have to do one of two things. You either have to have one concern that everybody can agree on, or you have to have a, just a few, and they can't be very many, that people are willing to go around. And you have to say, okay, we're not going to... And I'm not saying this is the particular thing, but you say, okay, we're not going to compromise on abortion, and we're not going to compromise on a 90% taxation rate, right? Or we're, we're not, not going to compromise on, on unemployment. We're not... Yeah, 90% taxation rate would be a good one. You know, and, 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 and sort of, you know, these are the things that we're not... And we're not going to compromise on, you know, whatever. You, but it has to be a very small list that everybody can get behind, knows why, and won't betray on, right? So you can't have a position where they say, okay, we'll give you, you know, one of the three things you want, split you off, and then go beat up the rest of you, right? Right. You see what and, I mean? and, this, and this is what's been successful in the Clintonian centrist democratic leadership takeover is that it's siloed all of these issues. No, every, no, nobody, everybody is working on their issue, and nobody's working on an issue. Well, everybody, the, the thing about special interest groups is that what a special interest group needs is some little technical win that they can then go to their funders and say, look, we got a win, right? So you give them some little thing, and they can, they can then go and say, look, we're successful, right? But the problem is, is you get that, and meanwhile, everybody else gets screwed. And then they come around, and they take whatever it was you, you – maybe you keep that win, but they take a bunch of other stuff that you, you care about away from you, right? Now, now so, you, were, you worked you – know, that's very much what Jane did at FDL, was she would pick individual issues and silo them. I mean, and it, did it work on those issues? Well, I don't know. Probably not, no. But the problem is, again, that comes down to the fact of, of, of this is what people are – willing to fundraise on. So I, w I want to come back to this. This is a really important point about building coalitions and ideological movements, okay? An ideological... One of the reasons that the conservatives are successful is that they give money. When the conservatives win, the people who are most important in their coalition get more money and resources. Do you see what I mean? So it's a, it's a self-reinforcing cycle. And, and if you don't... And what we have right now on the left is our are all these micro-issue groups. So you get money because you're for manufacturing, because you're for the environment, because you're, you know, you're for gay marriage, because you're for abortion, because you're for this, because you're for that. But nobody is for, or you're for labor. And everybody's fighting all their little movements. That's what you're rewarding is, is, is this sort of thing, because you can't fundraise on a large, wide thing. So what you always get is what you're willing to pay for. And what the left has been willing to pay for is micro-movements. So that's what you've gotten, is micro-movements, because that's what you can fundraise for. And now, so we can hostage-take for them as well. Well, I mean, I mean if what I will suggest and, and is, is that what you want to look at is you want to look at what the Scandinavians did in the mid-century. Mid Not now, because they've moved away from this, but where... One of the things that the right does, okay, is that you can live your entire life through the church, right? The church will help you find a wife or a husband. The church will help you find a job. Uh, it will take care of your kids. You know, like it'll, 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 there's a school which you can go to for your kids. You can live your entire life within that church circle, right? Now, when you go to, when, in places like Sweden and, and Finland and so forth, the social democratic parties used to offer the same sort of thing, and still do to some extent, where they ran daycare, they ran clinics, they ran schools, right? They ran social events, right? You could live your entire life within the social democratic movement. You know, they would set you up with your, with your husband or your wife, right? They would take care of your kids, they would educate the, the, the you. Same, the same is true as Tammany Hall and the machines in New York. Right. So, so, and that's a broad 
spectrum, right? I mean, you have to look after everybody in, in those circumstances. And I, I would suggest that if, if people want to do things, that that's the way, that's where you have to go to. But then the question becomes, again, how do you fund them? How do you fund them? Well, you fund them with the state. I mean, the, and you look at the no, voting. Don't, you don't fund them with the state. You don't fund them with the state. The state is not going to fund this stuff. So you're going to have to find another way. You're going to have to find another way. And, and to, to some extent, Marijuana sales. Marijuana sales. To some extent, what you're going to, what you're going to have to do is accept a lower standard of living. Living doesn't necessarily mean you may well find that you're more happy, okay? So, and you may find that you're healthier, right? But it does mean that you won't have as many consumer gigas because, to some extent, what you're going to have to do is live on what the what the group can produce for itself, and most of the money is treated in the same way that a that a, a developing nation treats hard currency, right? Which is say, this is what we use to pay taxes and do things that really can only be bought with dollars, right? Everything else. I mean, if we want to do daycare, well, fine, we've got people. We just use some of our people to do daycare. If we want to teach kids, fine, we just use some of our people to teach kids, right? I mean, it's not hard. I mean, we can just print the stuff off the internet, right? I mean, we can put together, you know, textbooks. There's plenty of unemployed people who are very highly educated who could educate our kids, right? You know, if we want to grow food, well, we'll grow food. I mean, we have, you know, we have... We're going to have apartments. We're going to have houses. I mean, our members have this sort of stuff. So there's a pile of stuff that can be done along those lines. And when you do that, you build a constituency. You build people who are not going to betray because they have strong social ties, right? But the trouble is, is that the church has a has an underlying uh, philosophical and social organizing bent already in place. To do this, you've got to get people to agree that, and we've seen some movements like this. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, script currencies showing up in uh, small towns. We've seen this local war movement is very much along the lines of that. You know, if you want to live off what local food is being produced, people are, there's a sense of possibility in this idea that's already in the air. But the idea of forming new, new and better communes seems to me to be optimistic. Well, it's one possibility. I mean, if you're not willing to do that, then what you come down to is it'll blow up when it blows up. And the problem with it blows up when it blows up, what ideas are they going to put in charge? I mean, you're going to get things like term limits and, and getting rid of the Federal Reserve and running over to Bitcoin and all sorts of crazy stuff that, frankly, won't work, right? I mean, I mean, and, and who has, you know, if, if who is organized outside of government, right? What happens when, when right now in the U.S.? I mean, you're talking the religious nuts, People like that. I mean, those are the people who are going to wind up taking charge. They're the ones with the guns, and they're the ones with the plan. Well, you know, to Randolph, the thing is, is this stuff did work in, in Scandinavia. That's how they built their power base, right? So it has worked. It worked in, it, you know, this is, this is how Hezbollah built its power base. This is how the Muslim Brotherhood worked its power base. I mean, yeah, it hasn't quite worked out right at this moment, but they're still alive, and they're still in the game, and they did run the government for a while. This is, you know, this is how very many political movements build their power bases, is by actually taking care of people. If you actually take care of people, stop trying to do it through the government. The government doesn't want to do it. The point is, is the government's withdrawal from food stamps and stuff like this is, is an opportunity, or it could be seen as an opportunity. And in any case, at the very least, you're still doing some good, right? Right. So, and, and an obvious place to do something like this would be, would be Detroit, where you've got literally vacant lots that could be... Yes, Detroit is, Detroit is the obvious place to do it. I mean, just, just go in. Um, there are certain issues there during the bankruptcy and so forth. Right, Again, but, you, but you'd go in, you'd squat, you'd have, you'd have people organize squatters. You would be... Yeah, you organize would, squats. The, the problem right now is, is, is to figure out how to, have, how to make sure the cops won't destroy your stuff. Because what will happen is, is that you'll squat and they'll go in and they'll roust you and they'll destroy all of your stuff because that's what they like to do, right? And, so so that's a, and this is where you want to turn to the Occupy People's experience to help you organize this. I mean, this is something Graeber would talk about in great detail if you gave him an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying this is the only possibility. I'm just throwing this out as one of the things that could be done. What is most likely to happen is that things will just go to heck, and then things will blow up, okay? And on, and, and on that note, yeah. let's close with a musical interlude. We'll see how it goes out. I mean, the other thing that I will say is, is that what matters is the ideas in the air. So even if you can't organize on the ground, if you can change what people think is the obvious thing to do, then when everything breaks, they'll do what seems to them to be the obvious thing to do. Or when people get hopeless enough that they'll try anything. That too, by which point it may be too late. That's still yeah. your best, uh, your best, Sean. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for extending the conversation from last time. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jay. <laughs>
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.